0: Well, good morning, everyone. For those of you you who do not know me, my name is Adam, and I serve with the elders here, and it is my privilege today to bring the Word of God to you. Um, Isaiah 53 that we read earlier today is just a great reminder to us of what God has done for us in the gospel. It's also um, a great reminder to us that the path that Jesus took was set in stone when time began. Isaiah was long before Christ walked this earth, and yet it, it tells us of what Christ would walk and what would happen. And it's a great reminder that God purposes His will and does His will. And so we'll see some more reminders of that today in Acts 21. So if you would stand with me as we read... God's Word. We'll read Acts 21 verses 1 through 16. God's Word says this, And when they had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we'd come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home when we had finished the voyage from Tyre we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied while we were staying for many days a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. You may be seated. Let's pray today and ask God to help. Father, we're thankful for what you have done for us in Christ and thankful for the gospel reminders that we sang about today and, and what we have read about. And we just ask that you would continue to work in our hearts. We ask that if someone is here today and they haven't trusted in Christ, that your spirit would convict them of their sin and that they would turn to you. And we ask for the rest of us that your spirit would work in our hearts, that he would point out our sin, that we would learn to trust you more. We're thankful for your word and its power and your spirit and the work that it does in our hearts. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Just Do Something, tells of the obituary of a fictional or maybe not so fictional man named Walter Houston. Here is what the obituary reads. Man 91 dies waiting for the will of God. Tupelo, Mississippi. Walter Houston, described by family members as a devoted Christian, died Monday after waiting 70 years for God to give him clear direction about what to do in his life. He hung around the house and prayed a lot, but just never got that confirmation, his wife Ruby says. Sometimes he thought he heard God's voice, but then he wouldn't be sure, and he'd start the process all over again. Houston, she says, never really figured out what his life was about, but felt content to pray continuously about what he might do for the Lord. Whenever he was about to take action, he would pull back because he didn't want to disappoint God or go against him in any way. Ruby says he was very sensitive to always remaining in God's will. That was primary to him. Friends say they liked Walter, though he seemed not to capitalize on his talents much. Walter had a number of skills that he never got around to using, says longtime friend Timothy Burns. He worked very well with wood and had a storyteller side to him, I always told him, take a risk, try something new if you're not happy. But he was too afraid of letting the Lord down. To his credit, they say, Houston worked mostly as a handyman, was able to pay off the mortgage on the couple's modest home. So Paul faced a similar issue in this passage before us today. The mystery or the perplexity of God's will. It's something that we talk a lot about in Christian circles, isn't it? We say phrases like, if the Lord wills, or the Lord willing. You might hear someone say, if it's God's plan. We're trying to determine God's will. It's all in God's timing. God opens and shuts doors. You'll hear people say the phrase, I don't know what God has for me. Even in verse 14 today, these disciples say, let the will of the Lord be done. We seem to be acutely aware that God has a will, but we often live our lives in confusion and uncertainty about God's about what God's will is for us. You may find some comfort in knowing that you are not alone. We see here in this passage this morning that there was some confusion about God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem. We'll look at the verses before us, but I want us to see a few main things from this passage as we dive in. I want us to see Paul's relentless commitment to the will of God to share the good news with the lost world, even when other believers were urging him not to go to Jerusalem. I also want us to think about suffering in the life of the believer and how that fits with God's will. And lastly, I want to remind us of the hope found and the good news of the gospel. The good news that Jesus died to secure for you and me, and the good news that Paul was willing to die for in order that people would hear it. So we see in the first three verses here of chapter 21 the route that Paul was trying to take back to Jerusalem. Luke is giving us real history here as it's happened. We see this voyage and this route that Paul takes our ESV here uses the word parted in verse 1 Jim touched on this some last week about the intensity of the departures when Paul's friends know where he is headed several translations use the phrase torn ourselves away from them instead of the word departed to help help show the intensity of this departure these are these are emotional times for everybody that's involved here Put yourself in their shoes. Think of your most dear friend telling you he is going to head someplace, that he might be killed. This is hard stuff here, and these, these people love Paul. Paul was the one who had brought them the good news. Paul was the one who had led them and taught them. He was an important figure in their lives who they, who they respected and who they loved. And now it's time for Paul to leave, and as far as they were concerned, He was leaving for the last time. So Paul leaves, and they eventually end up in this city called Tyre, which I don't know if that's where Goodyear started or not, but it was a city called Tyre, which is this city in Lebanon. It's about 100 miles away from Jerusalem, 100 miles north, so it'd be about where Yankton, South Dakota, is from us. They stop here because the ship needs to unload its cargo, and we see that in verse 3. Now this is where things start to get a little strange here. A few months ago when we were getting the schedule together for the, the summer preaching schedule and Acts 21 fell to me, I read the first three verses and I was like, okay, I think I, I, think I understand what's happening here. Um, I got to this verse and I was immediately wishing that I had been assigned a different passage. So, so what in the world is going on here? Has the Apostle Paul been refusing to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit this entire time? Has he been so determined to go to Jerusalem that he's made all this up? Or are the people here wrongly interpreting the warning that the Spirit is giving? On the one hand, it'd be easy to decide with the disciples who discouraged Paul. Luke tells us that the disciples spoke to Paul in verse 4 through the Spirit. This is a compelling argument. It appears to be the one time that Paul is ignoring the Holy Spirit, has Paul's determination to visit Jerusalem hindered his ability to heed the Spirit's warnings? On the other hand, Paul has been trying to get to Jerusalem for a while. Back in chapter 19, verse 21, we read that it was in the Spirit that Paul resolved to go. Chapter 20, verse 22, it says, Paul told the Ephesian elders, that he was constrained by the spirit to go in verse 23 there we see that paul had that the spirit had already warned paul that dangers awaited there but that never discouraged him from going this narrative really is kind of perplexing isn't it let's talk for a few minutes about the lord's perplexing providence it's clear that the holy spirit is warning paul but is paul supposed to go to Jerusalem or is he supposed to prepare for the suffering that awaits? Or is he supposed to avoid going there or is he supposed to prepare for the suffering? What's more likely, that Paul is ignoring the Holy Spirit for the first time or that the disciples are misunderstanding the purpose of the warnings? In other words, in verse 4 is this the, is this the case of the Holy Spirit saying, Paul, you better not go to Jerusalem. And Paul just saying I'm going to go anyways. Or is there more to it than that? If you read Christians who have thought about this question and researched it over the years, you come up with different answers. One commentator that I read who has thought about it very deeply, he said that as good of a man as Paul is, he's a flawed man. And his zeal for his countrymen overrode his zeal to obey God. He became blinded to God's leading at this point by the Spirit. And in his view, Paul was disobedient, but God worked through it. On the other hand, there are some who would look at this and say, well, it's possible that's what hap- that what is happening here is that the Holy Spirit has told these disciples what awaits Paul, and these disciples have then taken it upon themselves to interpret this as Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem. You could look, for example, at Paul's previous sensitivity to the leading of the Spirit, that every time we see prior to this when the Holy Spirit says, Paul, don't go someplace, Paul says, okay, I'm not going to. So why would, he, why would he change now? You might also ask why, as you look at the events of Paul's journey to Jerusalem, why does it parallel well so closely to the events in Jesus' life in going to Jerusalem or to the cross? There's a lot of comparisons here. And some people say, well, it's actually comparison. Some people say, well, it's actually contrast. And there's people who debate this. Was Paul obedient? Was Paul disobedient? At this point, there are perplexing questions about that. Personally, I think Paul is walking in obedience, particularly when we look back at previous chapters where Paul is talking about wanting to go to Jerusalem, not counting his life dear to himself so that he would finish the race with joy and ministry which he had received from the Lord. But there are people who believe otherwise. Either way, how God is working, sometimes it isn't immediately obvious to us, is it? Sometimes we're perplexed. Sometimes we're confused. But this is the path that the Lord has for Paul to walk. Why is everyone trying to stop him? And we're not talking about people who are enemies of the gospel. We're talking about people who are friends of the gospel, As we continue on, we see down in verse 8 that the voyage continues. They come to the house of Philip. Philip here is called an evangelist. Earlier in Acts, he's actually one of the seven deacons who were chosen. Philip has four unmarried daughters who prophesied. We're not told anything, but that they prophesy. However, we are told that Agabus comes down from Judea, and he prophesies. Agabus, we've already encountered earlier in Acts. Paul worked with him previously in getting relief for believers that were in need. So let's look at Agabus' prophecy in verse number 11. It says, In coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of of the Gentiles, So again, is this something that's trying to stop Paul, or is this something that's trying to prepare Paul? Why would God have Agabus tell him this if Paul already knew it? There's questions like this that arise. There are some, by the way, and, and I need to mention this, there are some who look at this and they say about Agabus, Here is an example of how in modern prophetic revelation the prophets can get some things right and some things wrong. And that's how some people excuse some of the errors in the modern Pentecostal and charismatic movements. This is not a case of that. Agabus here is speaking by the Spirit, but he doesn't get it wrong. Here's where some people think that he gets it wrong, because Agabus says that the Jews at Jerusalem will bind this man and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. But you read later that it's the Romans who put chains on Paul. Well, here's the reality. What happens later in this chapter is that the Jews seize Paul and are trying to kill him. And more than likely, they would have bound him or restrained him in some way as they're trying to kill him. They hand him over to the Romans when the Romans come because they have no other choice. It's not a matter of the Holy Spirit giving imprecise prophecy or Agabus getting part of it right and part of it wrong. When we look at this and we think about it, it seems like a strange way for events to unfold, doesn't it? What's going on in this passage? What also stands out is what Paul says in verse number 13. Acts 21:13 says, Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. But the story doesn't get any less complicated. Paul comes to Jerusalem eventually. He's received well by the Jerusalem church. He tells them what God has done, and they glorify him. But ultimately, we know that things take a turn later for Paul, don't we? It seems to be a very perplexing thing. Yet if Paul did not go on to the temple later on in Acts, he would not have been grabbed by the Jews there. If he wasn't grabbed by the Jews there, he wouldn't have been rescued by the Romans. If he hadn't been rescued by the Romans, he wouldn't have been put into Roman chains. And if he had not been put into Roman chains, ultimately he would never have reached Rome. But even though we see in in Paul's life how God has worked all of this out, how God used even this to bring the gospel to Rome so that Paul was, was able not only to preach to his own countrymen, but also to preach to those in Rome we still might ponder and wonder why it must have happened this way. Could not there have been an easier way for Paul and the gospel to get to Rome? So we also at times will walk in this path of God's providence that doesn't immediately make sense to us. I immediately thought of the cross when we were reading this passage and the path that Christ took to save his people The way that God works often makes the least sense to us, doesn't it? Think of all the things that Christians get from the cross that don't make sense at the face value of it. We get life from death. We get pardon from penalty. And we get justification from judgment. The longer we walk and the more that we see God and how God is moving in us, and our circumstances that he's bringing into our lives, the, the more we're confronted with the truth that's expressed in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are, my ways, nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Or as Proverbs says in Proverbs 20, verse 24, A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? The path of providence is perplexing. We won't get it all. In fact, there's going to be times in our lives where we just can't seem to figure it out. God's providential plan was perplexing for Paul, just like God's providential plan can be perplexing for us. But not only that, you'll see here in Acts that God's providence can sometimes be painful. What happens in Paul's experience? Well, We've, read, we've already read some of the pain that Paul has experienced in the book of Acts, but we know what happens. Paul eventually dies at the hands of the Romans, but we, but we read several accounts of, of pain and problems that Paul faces in the New Testament. The path of providence can be painful, and Paul testifies to that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you guys want to turn there, you can. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23-23. Through 28. Take a look there with me, if you would. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 28. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul could testify that God's path was painful. We may not all experience the same kind of pain. We may not all have the same degree of pain. We may not all have the same type of pain, but the path is of providence can be painful verse 14 is not lost on us here let the will of the lord be done if we think we're going to make it through this life pain-free we have another thing coming don't believe false teachers that will say hey if you follow jesus everything is going to be good in this life you're never gonna experience any difficulty. That's not true. Thank God for Paul's willingness to endure for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God's elect. Paul would say that he suffered. He suffered evil, even to the point of change. But the word of God is not bound. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.10, therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul had an eye on the bigger picture we already read previously from chapter 20 to 24, excuse me, from chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, where Paul would talk about how the Spirit had told him chains and tribulations awaited him in Jerusalem. And yet he would not be discouraged from the task that laid before him. He wanted to finish the race with joy. He wanted to finish the ministry that he had received from the Lord. Paul's path of providence was a painful one. Our particular path may be different, but Paul's example reminds us that sometimes God has a painful path of providence for us. This is not something that's in the fine print somewhere. This is something that the scripture reveals to us over and over again. Paul had told the believers at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra after he'd come back, after he had experienced so much oppression and even had been stoned and left for dead, he came back to the disciples in those very cities and he exhorted them to continue in the faith. And he said, we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. That's Acts 14, 22. And it's so with us. The path of providence is painful. We must walk through much tribulation to enter into the kingdom of God. In church, it's important that we walk this path with awareness we're not off, and we're not caught off guard with the struggle, and we don't quit because of the sorrow. As Peter tells his readers in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Sometimes professing Christians fall for false advertising, and they think that suffering shouldn't be part of their lives. And so when the tough times come, they don't understand it. They think that something's wrong. They think that God has forgotten them or that God has abandoned them. God hasn't forgotten you even when the path is a painful path. And we must be aware of that and not be blindsided. We must not be turned aside. We must walk this path with awareness that it will be painful and sometimes perplexing. But we also can walk this path with assurance. The assurance that the presence of pain does not mean the absence of God. I want to say that one more time for those in the back. The presence of pain does not mean the absence of God. This should be our testimony. Psalm 46, verse 1 says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. It says here that God will help us in our trouble. It doesn't say that we will not have trouble, but that when we experience trouble, it's God who is our refuge and our strength. He's our help in time of trouble. We have even in our own church body, those who are here right now and some who are not, we can make a long list of the painful providences that have been part of our church body, can't we? When I look through the prayer list that we have, there is much hardship and suffering that people in this body are enduring at this very moment. And there's pain that we don't even know about yet that will come. We can think of all kinds of painful things that have happened in our church body, can't we? Look around. There are people who have walked hard, painful paths sitting in this church building right now. Even as we've gone through this experience of COVID the past few years and the struggles that have been associated with it, some of you have walked a painful path with regards to your physical health. Some of you have walked a painful path with regards to your emotional and your mental health. We could list all kinds of painful providences that we might never have expected that God has brought. But I don't want to end on that note. I want to bring our attention to one final point. And that is, even though the path of providence can be perplexing, even though the path of providence can be painful, ultimately, the path to providence is perfect. I don't mean by this that we are perfect. I don't mean by this that there's no confusing things about our path. We've already established that. I don't mean to say that our path is not going to be painful. We've already established that. What I'm pointing out is that God purposes through that hard and painful path to accomplish what is perfect. What I mean by that is that God is working all things together for good. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. One of the things that we can be confident in is that God in those confusing and those painful times is working his will. He's working all things for good. He's in the process of making you and me more like Christ. He's preparing us for heaven I do not mean that the path is never perplexing or painful, but we do know that God does all things well. Mark 7.37 tells us that Jesus has done all things well. And when we get to heaven, this will be our testimony as well. None of us will reach heaven and will look back and be second-guessing our Savior. None of us will look back second-guessing His providence. Though now we might be very perplexed and very confused about what's happening, now we'll be experiencing some type of pain. Now Now it may be confusing and we can't figure out why God is doing what he's doing, but we can know that God was and is accomplishing his purpose. He accomplished his purpose in the life of Paul. He accomplished his purpose in the life of Christ, and he's accomplishing his purpose in our lives as well. One of the amazing things that we've seen as we look at God's providence in Acts is that God, even in these perplexing and painful times, is moving to grant the desire of Paul's own heart to preach the gospel in Rome. He does all things well. We see in the life of Paul that God's providence is perfect. But what I mean by this is that his way is perfect. Psalm 18, verse 30 said, As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield to those who trust in Him. So this really brings us to this point. Paul goes through this perplexing providence, this painful providence. Paul will soon be under arrest. What's going to happen, and as the story continues, is he's going to have the opportunity to speak to his fellow countrymen. And they're going to reject him and the gospel. In chapter 23, they're going to put a plot against him to try to kill him. Paul's going to face all kinds of false accusations. But you know what? God is working out his purpose in Paul's life. Just like God is working out his purpose in your life. His way is perfect. His word is proven. And he is a shield to all those who trust in in him. How should we trust in him? Well, it really starts with the gospel, doesn't it? Did Jesus, the son of God, come to earth? Did he teach and perform miracles and heal? Did he train 12 disciples to spread the good news of his kingdom? Did he suffer while he was on earth? Did he go to Jerusalem where he was betrayed and beaten and killed? Did he do all these things without sin? Did he rise from the dead and triumph over sin and death? Is he coming again? Why did he do all these things? He did them to bring the Father glory. He did them, he did it for your good, and he did it because he loves you. And this was all part of the providential plan of God. Now think about that. No matter what circumstances you're in, no matter how hard it is to understand what is happening in your life, no matter how much pain and hardship and suffering you're going through, Jesus has done all the things we just talked about for you. Your eternity is secure if you are in Christ. Your future is sure. If you're in Christ today, you're a child of the King. And let me tell you, A king's child is a pretty good place to be. So remember Walter Houston that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon today? You don't have to be like Walter. If you're in Christ, you know that you will never be snatched out of the Father's hand, and you know that everything happening in your life is for the good, is for your good, to the glory of God. So Christian, Rest easy tonight when you go to bed, that no matter how perplexed you are about what God is doing, no matter how much pain or suffering that you're going through, the future is perfect because the perfect king of the universe is working it all out for your good. Of this, we can be sure. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who put their trust in him. So trust in him, church. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are over all things in our life. And even though sometimes we not be able to understand the pain we're going through or understand why you have brought circumstances into our life, what we can do is we can trust you because we know that you are good. And we know that just like in the life of Paul, You are working out all things for our good. So, Father, I ask that no matter what we're going through, that we would trust you today, that you are working your will according to your purpose. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand for the benediction. Today I'm going to read from Psalm 121, verses 7 and 8. It says, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. You are dismissed.